Thank God. Let's Talk Gospel Music Gold podcast is excited about season three and more fabulous guests. We have been talking with and sharing stories, experiences, and laughs with singers, songwriters, musicians, and independent artists in continuing gospel music and its gold. The guests on the show have tirelessly been on the battlefield to bring God's word through song, deed, and action. We also present tribute shows honoring those whom are no longer with us physically, but have left a legacy of gold with their contributions. We hope to continue bringing exciting shows and present great episodes and growing your knowledge in gospel music and its gold to keep you coming back for more. Welcome to Let's Talk Gospel Music Gold. Today's show, I thought I'd do something a little different. And that is talking about the history behind Black Nativity, uh, which was written by Langston Hughes. And I have a guest with me today. Yay! And it's Calvin Gibbs Jr., who has many passions, among which are theatrical acting, directing, and producing. He has produced Christian theater arts programs in theaters and churches. One of the largest produced was a gospel musical entitled If the Preacher Ain't Right and served as a theater arts director for a well-known church in Illinois and conducted workshops and which took place at churches for their drama ministries across the country. Calvin has a motivational video blog. He also hosts a podcast and he has developed a new podcast called Diverse Talking Heads. Calvin also presents workshops and trainings to express communication, speaking, and diversity. Welcome to Let's Talk Gospel Music Gold. Hey, Calvin, how you doing? Well, thank you, Aunt Sonia. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. You're very welcome. And I figured... You know, there are times when I do research and do historical pieces where I'm giving tribute. But this was something that was really interesting to me is about this production called Black Nativity. And I thought maybe I would do a little digging and also found out that it has a lot of gospel music connotation. And one of the gospel icons or historians that I came across that was a part of this production and eventually will give a tribute show about him as well. But I'd just like to talk about the biological historical information that I found out about Black Nativity, that it was a gospel, what they called song play, <laughs> based on a script written by Langston Hughes which was originally titled, Wasn't That a Mighty Day? With music arranged by the show's stars, which were Marion Williams and Alex Bradford. The music was produced by Michael Santangelo and Barbara Greiner. The show used two gospel singing groups, the Stars of Faith and the Bradford Singers. 
and also starred Princess Stewart and directed by Vignette Carroll and opened for a limited run on Broadway at the 41st Street Theater in December 1961 to critical and popular acclaim. The production was invented to make its European debut at the Spagoli Festival in Italy. After Spagoli, Black Nativity opened in London, where it was taped for a television special by the Westinghouse Broadcasting Company. Wow, that's a, a real old name. <laughs> Black Nativity continued to tour in Europe, the United States, and Australia through 1964 with an interpretation of a Christmas week run at the Philharmonic. Yes, with the Philharmonic Hall at Lincoln Center in 1962. Now, just to step off for a second, I wanted to talk or give my audience a little bit about Alex Bradford, who was born in 1927 and actually professionally became known as Professor Alex Bradford. He was a multi-talented gospel composer, singer, arranger, and song director who was an influence on artists such as Little Richard, Bob Marley, and Ray Charles, and who helped bring about the modern mass choir movement in gospel music. Now, Professor Bradford first appeared on stage at the age of four, then joined a children's gospel group at the age of 13 soon obtaining his own radio show. He organized another group after his mother sent him to New York City following a racial incident. He continued singing after returning to attend the Snow Hill Institute, which is located in Snow Hill, Alabama, where he acquired the title professor while teaching as a student. Alex later moved to Chicago in 1947, where he worked briefly with Roberta Martin and toured with Mahalia Jackson, then struck out on his own with his own group, the Bradford Singers, followed by another group, the Bradford Specials. Now, in 1961, and this is where he and Langston joined, is when he re his recording career was declined. So Bradford decided to join the cast of the off-Broadway show, now known as Black Nativity, which was based on the writings of Langston Hughes that toured throughout Europe. I just wanted to give that bit of history about a little bit of an introduction about Black Nativity and one of the iconic gospel artists of the day. Now, Tell me a little bit about what you'd like to say about Black Nativity. Well, first of all, um, I'd like to say you mentioned earlier that there's connotations of gospel music in it. No, there is actual gospel music in it. Langst this is a powerful play that, Le that Langston Hughes produced. And it tells the story of the birth of Christ from a early... 60s black point of view mm -hmm. and it wasn't on Broadway originally it was first in 1961 
off Broadway. Mm-hmm. I said they that. Were, because they wasn't letting black people produce on Broadway at that time. <laughs> so so the big thing about, about that is here's a chance. Now, we talk, I've heard several of your podcasts, we talk about using music to um, preach to people, to um, uh, get the message to people. But here is using through a play the dialect that people understand mm-hmm. the music the music that people can feel the drama that people can see on stage when you see yourself or see uh, a representation of yourself on the screen or on the stage it becomes more personable to you mm-hmm. to the po- to the point that uh, it can really touch your heart and thus help getting the message um, to you in a more efficient way. The thing I like about this is that uh, every year, somewhere in the world, it's not only in the U.S. anymore, but somewhere in the world, this play is being produced during the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and not only is it giving the uh, message of Christ, but it's incorporating uh, still gospel music. Uh, Sometimes they rearrange the songs differently, but it's all powerful and reach people where they are. I think it's an excellent play. Mm-hmm. And they also include hymns and original pieces. So it takes some of the, your traditional Christmas music, like, uh, well, of course we know Joy to the World is a based on a religious background or go tell it on the mountain or something or you know songs similar in that manner where they incorporate that but it also goes deeper by going into the hymnology and pulling some of the hymns out and in some cases well now we call these hip-hop songs or what have you for those that have molded the show to accommodate today's society we can go in and look at some of the productions that were done back in the late 40s early 50s even the the early 60s now in looking further into this one of the choreographers for this production was alvin haley now alvin haley was a part of it however when the show was originally called wasn't it a mighty day alvin was a part of it and wanted to really showcase in that then not that's just my opinion i don't know alvin (laughs) but i'm just thinking but when langston changed it to the black nativity and we're thinking around the time that that show was to be performed it brought a lot of controversy if you put black in a title and it is all black cast. He definitely wanted an all black cast, Langston Hughes. But when it when he changed the name from Wasn't It a Mighty Day to Black Nativity, that's when Alvin and another, I'm trying to think of the other uh, dancer that pulled out of the show because they didn't want to be a part of that because of what was going on in our society during that time. Yes, that is correct. 
And I don't know Alvin Ailey either. I know his seen his dance company uh, many times over the years. And, uh, you know, I get it. You know, he wasn't comfortable uh, with the title and he wanted to pull out. Um, I think it's too bad for him that he did, you know, uh, because that was a I think it would have been a spectacular uh, production to be a part of. Yeah, now, you know, the, what's really interesting, and I, this is just something that just popped in my head, is how in the United States, it, when you think of a play with a with the name Black in it, but then they took the show with the name Black Nativity across the oceans, and it was received very well. They received it so well that it ran for four consecutive years they had a break to come back to the united states to present it at carnegie i'm sorry not carnegie philharmonic was it is that where i said it yes, was carnegie, the philharmonic Phil, philharmonic so here we have a production that in the united states when you use the word black you think it's not going to be successful. It's not going to go anywhere. But the invitation was extended to go across the seas to put on this production. And it ran consecutively. It didn't just run for the Christmas season. When you talk about running consecutively, that is a long-running show. Yeah, well, you know, back in the 60s, there was a negative connotation associated with the word Black that it was bad, that it meant uh, evil, um, you know, less than, if you will. And when you're talking about, you know, Christ, the birth of Christ, you definitely don't want to think about, you know, less than or evil or anything like that. So people had to learn more about the specialness of the word black, mm -hmm. that it doesn't, does it, that it doesn't always mean evil, that it, you know, can that it does have uh, positive connotations associated with it. And um, I think that was an, another bold move by Langston Hughes to call it that. Because at that time, we weren't even being um, called among ourselves as, as, as African Americans or, you know, uh, I think it, I think it was Afro American <laughs> during the, those times. Mm. Or, or maybe still Negro, you know. So I think that uh, was a, a bold move on his part as well. But you know, the original dialect of the play included language that I think Black people, especially when you talk about the inner cities or at, at that time, folks that maybe lived in Harlem or other communities of color would identify, would understand and identify with immediately. I, I read a snippet of the play before we began our conversation. And when you talk about the shepherds in the field, okay, these are, you know, guys out there at night. Mm -hmm. That's when they did their, their work, you know, and they, <laughs> they had the night shift. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But they were talking among themselves about 
the shepherds that had the day shifts. That usually was the, you know, better. It was light, light during the day. Um, you know, maybe it was warmer during the day. And they felt that was allocated to the older or more experienced shepherds. Mm -hmm. So then so you have that work dynamic that we as a people understand about uh, getting the, the less than desirable shifts. Whereas the day shifts are in the daylight, it's sunny, it's warmer, perhaps. And as we do, we complain about the job that we have. And they do it in their dialect, the dialect of the inner city that people in the audience would definitely understand, would, um, would first understand and then appreciate because, hey, he's talking like, like me. This is the way we talk about things when we have disagreements. Mm -hmm. so, so I thought that was a very um, poignant uh, just a, a scene of the play. When you and when you think of that, I'll I'll talk too about. So that show originated in 1961, and over the years, of course, some of the dialect has changed. Although they're keeping the same con content of the play, let let's kind of diverge over to that a little bit about transitioning a play that's from 1961 to the year 2022. Okay. It's it's basically just like anything else. If you think of you know King Kong done in black and white um, or any black and white movie, you bring it into the current day. You want to update the locations. You want to update the people in the dress. You want to update the language that they use as well. I don't think that anything uh, is taken away uh, from doing that as long as the director and producer keeps in mind the the, um, the target, the goal that the author Langston Hughes had in mind about this play. It's just taking you know what was and bringing it into what is. Now, I just thought of a word that is used in theater where you have a person that does research about that time period. What is that person called? Off the top of my head, I don't remember. Is it a historian or? It's similar. There's a word for it. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Well, when we think of, too, about the adaptation, and like we mentioned, somewhere in the world since 1961, at least someone is putting on this production in December. And it shows that the it was performed off-Broadway December 11th, 1961. And that kind of gives a little segue into the time of year because this was not long after World War II ended. Right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And thinking about doing a produ production with an all-Black 
cast. That was something in itself very daring, not only the name, but to have an all-Black cast. And of course, we know that in all places, things are segregated. I'm wondering, and this is just me, as to how they were able to fill the theater because a lot of people may or may not, well, I'm not from the from the East Coast, you are. Talk to me about theater, I guess, for lack of a better word, the, the theater spirit of Black people going to uh, theater at that time. I know you weren't old enough to know that, but... But just like uh, with musicians and singers there were clubs and, and theaters that they could not perform in so there was black if you will uh theaters and and uh, concert halls where they could and they would uh the word that we was trying to think of earlier was dramaturge okay thank dramaturge. you yeah and you know they would go to places where they were allowed in to partake of the event. So the fact that this was off-Broadway, I don't think there was many uh, Black productions off-Broadway in the 19, early 1960s. So that, I think, probably was, um, you know, probably caused a roar, roar within itself. Now, Langston Hughes uh, was known already for his works in poetry and playwriting and all, and I'm sure that um, helped obtain the space to put the show on. Uh, would it have been done without his name involved in it? I don't know. Maybe not. Hmm. But uh, I'm sure I'm sure glad that it that it was. Uh, and then you talked about filling the the audience. Once black people know there's an event for them. <laughs> they will come, you know. <laughs> and for those that had not ever been to a play or been off Broadway, that's the closest. A lot of them may have been to Broadway, except maybe passing through, you know, in the streets and all. So here's a chance to experience something. Uh, maybe you can't get the full experience of a large Broadway production, but here's something catered just for you. So I don't think filling the halls would, filling the um, uh, theater would have been that much of a problem. Okay. Okay. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I wonder when our, I know that, well, we both know that Langston Hughes was part of the Harlem Renaissance. And those were the Black writers that wrote a lot of the Black stories and the Black narratives. One of Langston's famous books was Native Son. So when you have someone that talks out of that genre and really gives that perspective, I look at it as he took what is what we typically know as the Christmas story and gave it 
the Black perspective as to how Christmas looks from the Black perspective and thinking about the story of Joseph, Joseph, Mary, and the birth of Jesus. And coming to fruition with including music, because music was and still is very integral in the Black community, where stories were told through music, some of which were people who could not read, they got the story through songs. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, for those, you know, one of the things that, that binds everybody, I always say, is music and sports. So, yeah, music, definitely. Uh, people would get it. Black people uh, raised or that went to church. So everybody went to church at one point or the other would I identify with the music most definitely and i also think that i have another point here and i just forgot what it was but another point would oh i know what it was the the fact that this was not only a black play but it was talking about jesus the son of god being black mary being black joseph being black that idea probably upset quite a few people mm. whether they were black or non-black they probably got a little upset behind that just think and during those times almost every church you went to had a picture of jesus white with the you know long hair and things like that and here they're showing or they're doing an adaptation of him being black. Okay. I hadn't even thought of it that way. I, I had yeah, not thought that of would, it that way. Oh yeah, that would upset quite a few people. And uh there may be another maybe another reason why it wasn't able to be premiered on Broadway. That's this is um you know radical stuff for the times. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember, and this is, I digress for a moment. I remember in the 70s, um, where in the Catholic Church, we started getting these African-American or Black calendars. And our calendars depicted all of the people that they talk about in the Bible. So you would see people or scenes from the Bible, and everyone in it was Black. And I remember seeing that in in the 70s when we would get those. So every year we would be excited to get these calendars. I can imagine 10 years prior to that in the 60s, there might have been a whole different dynamic in the sense of, uh, like you mentioned about it being at a theater, an off-Broadway theater, and why it possibly would not have been in a Broadway theater in a, a mainstream yeah. Broadway theater. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, I, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, but the main thing that, um, that I think that made, made this so special is that they told that story through a combination of not only song, um, scripture, poetry, dance, you know, it was the full package. 
And I think that is what made it so powerful and why it's probably still being uh, produced every year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, some 50 years later, it's still, it's still running, running strong. Now, I, I came across a little article where it says, why did Langston Hughes w- write Black Nativity? And the comment there was, Langston Hughes was an African-American poet, writer, and social activist. Uh-oh. Did did they say the word social activist? Okay, I'll, I'll leave that there. I'll, I'll let that hang in the air for a minute. And it says, he was a central figure in the Harlem Renaissance, a time when African-American culture, art, and music flourished. Black Nativity is a play that Langston Hughes wrote in 1961. It is a retelling of the nativity story from the perspective of an African-American family. Of course, they didn't use that terminology back in the 60s. But the play is significant because it provides a different lens on the Christmas story. And it highlights the Black American experience. And that's basically what we were just saying is that's why he wrote that because many children got excited to see someone of their own race, nationality, doing something or on stage or standing before them doing a production. And with the sense of using a choir because in the playbill, I'm sorry, not the playbill, but I looked at a sample of the play, uh, the script, and it indicated that they have, the choir is considered the townspeople in the play. So that was the way of justifying why you had so many people there. And then one segment that I read was that they were standing there barefoot in robes. I kind of want to know what, wonder what that significance was, is standing barefoot in robes, because that was written in the description of the play and how he wanted it to open. And also I looked at the set design that they were talking about. It was just a multi-tiered platform with a star. Now, anyone who's familiar with, especially current day set designs and set setup, you think about the simplicity of the set that they chose to have it multi-platforms, multi-height platforms and a star. I'm sure if we went to see that today, at any other place that there would be elaborate setting, there would be elaborate, how could I say, costuming. I looked at a well, few. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say, well, when you think about the story, that star is a central object. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a star that um, was over the place where Jesus was born. It was the star that led the wise men and the shepherds to where Jesus was. So just having that one single bright object 
on uh as a focal point mm-hmm. i think from from a theatrical or a directorial point of view is excellent now they may not have had shoes to show that these were not rich people you know if joseph had the money or or, or they came from a rich background they probably would have been in a inn or hotel or whatever they had the equivalent of during those days but he probably didn't have that major type of money we know money provides things with, that don't exist right okay we have no, we have no room at the end but if you got the money we got room at the end <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'm saying i understand so maybe, that so maybe the lack of shoes was to show that you know these were people from humble places. Humble beginnings. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That... Now, just just a just a thought. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I w- I'd like to uh, go back to something that we that we kind of touched on, but then bounced off of it. Is can you tell my audience who may not be familiar with a dramaturge, what does a dramaturge do? A dramaturge um, does the research. The person, that's the person that studies history for pieces in theater. So if I were a dramaturge and I needed to do research on a piece for the 1960s, I'm going to go back and look at the dialogue, the, the dialect, the words that was used, slang. I'm going to look at the clothes, what type of food was popular, how people maybe got around, what they watched on TV, what they did for leisure. And I'm going to compile a record of these things that the director can use in the play. Okay. That's basically. That's basically what the uh, responsibilities of the dramaturge is. Okay. And then that also goes into the scope of when I asked about using, utilizing, or the transitions that something would go through from a play that was written and performed in 1961 to the year 2022. And you as a director from your director's point of view and you want to draw in your audience, would you stick with that original 1960s style or would you model it to accommodate the modern vernacular, the the modern wear or the modern just dialogue? I think that is, well, that's a good question, first of all. And I think it really depends on what the vision the director has for the piece. Hmm. It'll be interesting and maybe in some cases a little challenging to produce it uh, as it was originally written, trying to understand different uh, terminology or you know different dialects, how people spoke at the time it definitely would be more challenging to get um, garments that would, if you want to have a scene in, uh, let's say, in a church, 
in 1960s. Uh, people wore different clothes, style clothes, than they do now. You can't be there with you know platform shoes or things like that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but on the other side of it is doing it in modern day, and I that's where you have to go through the play with a fine tooth comb, as they say, and identify each and every area that needs to be uh, updated. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a word, whether it's a location, whether it's a um, a, a um, article of clothing, you have to really be careful with that because minor things like uh, a, you know, those big uh, bling bling watches they wear these days. Right. You know, if this play is taking place, if you, you know, just move it up to even like the 1970s, then that piece of jewelry on the wrist is out of place. So I think it would be um, a bit challenging. Me, myself, I would try to do it in the original form. I think that would challenge me as a director, and I think it would take the audience back to a time uh, other than their present time. Okay. So even in looking at that, and I thought about a play that we went to see, and it was supposed to be a play set in biblical times and just looking at the costuming I was thrown aback because one there were several actors that had glasses on two there was several more that had modern day sandals on with buckles and of course during that time especially if you have a costume person they should at least know how to cover up that buckle so people don't see that. And then some had shoes that, you know, definitely would not have been back in that day. So talk about setting the atmosphere for a production when you're doing something, a timepiece, let's say. Well, again, a lot of that, depends on what the dramaturge uh, comes back with. You know, for me, the set design should be solid. If it is the middle 70s, let's say, then everything should look a certain way. There were certain, there are certain colors even that uh, transport you back to an era in time. So everything that takes place should be in that era, um, from the music, mm -hmm. from the dress, from the furniture, even, or it may even be the way the walls look. You know, there was a period of time when paneling, <laughs> wood paneling <It> was, <laughs> was big, <laughs> big on the walls. Right. I mean, but you would consider things like like that um, to transport people back. I mentioned the lighting and a lot of smaller theaters 
or production companies don't have the funds to properly invest in lighting or properly invest in a dramaturge. So I'm sure they do the best they can, but they should always try to have that person. And it can be the director that goes through the script word by word, page by page, and identifies areas where they can update or make sure that things are in the proper time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm I'm going to read something. I I in during research, I always try to make sure that I find written documentation as to support what I'm looking for, what I'm researching, and I go to different sites, etc. And I found this piece of information that's from the Dramatic Publishing Company. And someone who may not know who they are, they actually own the rights to various published pieces. And just in reading a little excerpt here where they had this big giant notice, and it indicates uh, the amateur and stock acting rights to this work and I'm talking about Black Nativity, and it, of course, it'll encompass other people's work as well, are controlled exclusively by the Dramatic Publishing Company, without whose permission in writing, no performance is, if, I'm sorry, no performance of it may be given. Royalty fees are given in our current catalog and are subject to change without notice. Now, wait a minute, I'm going back to this and I'm looking at this and I'm just a church that wants to put on a play. And I came across this, went to the library and I copied this. I know copying is a uh, <laughs> a thing of the past, but then it indicates that and you, you think, OK, I'm a church, I'm not for profit or I am a community group and we're not going to charge people. But it explicitly tells you in this publishing section, notice that royalties must be paid every time a play is performed, whether or not it's presented for profit or whether it is or not admission charged. A play is performed anytime it is acted before an audience. That's correct. So talk about that as far as the legalities of doing such a production. Well, if you do a play and don't pay the publisher, which pays the author or the author's foundation or whatever, the royalties to do that play, you can be sued if they decide to go after you. Mm. Now, whether you whether you're doing it for the one day run or, you know, a one month weekend run, whatever the case may be, you still have to pay royalties for that. And oftentimes the royalties are not really that much. But as the writer and the publisher of the works, uh, they are entitled to money for you using that, whether you charge it or not. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just like um, with um, uh, 
singers or musicians put out works and people want to sample it and you know use it in plays and stuff without proper permission. That's why they have um, a limitation of how long a time you can use a piece of music in a play, let's say, before you have to start paying royalties to that um, a singer or publishing company. The artist. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, uh, when in talking about that, now I think I'm going to do a show about that as well and talking about royalties and the rights, et cetera, especially in gospel music, where I looked at a, it was a string in a group that I'm part of, and some of the musicians were indicating and talking about many churches are voiding those rights because when they went on live, like Facebook Live, or they put their sermons online, they're actually breaking the protocol of the rights for the person to get paid their royalties. And that would, I'm going to talk more about that as far as gospel music and how that happens. I'll, I'll get a group together and talk about that. But it's the same thing that comes from plays. Now, I'd look this one up because we are talking about Black Nativity, and I looked in one catalog where they say the minimum royalty rates are $110 per performance. That's not $110, you know, you purchase the um, the play, which, okay, fine, I, I got a, a, a play and I'm going to put it on, and some people think, well, okay, it's $110. Somebody may think that's $110 flat rate. But they're saying here per performance. And that's a difference as well in in that. And yeah, well, you have to, yeah, you have to be aware of that when you're making your budget for your your um event. If you have to uh pay 140 per performance and you want to do four shows, you need to have that money up front to pay off the publisher before you sell tickets. Mm-hmm. Now that's okay. That's a whole nother ball game there where you said you have to put in the budget to have that per performance money up front, not wait until after you put it on. And then you contact them and say, Hey, uh, we didn't make the money to pay for your royalties. And nope, that that's, <laughs> Nope, it doesn't work like that because then you you're kind of going on the the um, honor system. Mm -hmm. You know, some people will not be honest and say they didn't make any money when they did, or they or they didn't charge when they did, or or, or the amount that they charge. So yeah, that's why they want that money up front, have that contract cleared before you start selling tickets. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Have that information. And some companies will ask you to send them a playbill or something that gives the schedule of when that production is going to take place. We know about that. <laughs> when, when a production is going to take place and you put down that you are going to run that show for a weekend and you have a 
Friday night show, a Saturday matinee show, and a Saturday evening show, and you have a Sunday matinee show, that is not three shows. That's four shows you're doing. So you can't send them a notice and say, oh, we're only doing three shows, three days of shows. No. How many shows are you doing? So although it's set for three days, we're doing four shows. You have to make sure to send out the appropriate amount of money for those, for the use of that show. So if you're doing Black Nativity, let's say uh, New Branch Theater Company decided to do Black Nativity and you wanted to run the show for a week. Give the audience the budget of what you'd have to have up front. This is before you even pay your actors and your crew. So your cast and crew. You have to have the uh, right to produce the play. So if it's seven seven shows, uh, that's 140 times seven, whatever that, that amount comes to, has to be paid and secured. Okay. Also, there may be copying costs to give make sure that each uh, person that needs it for the play, actors and crew, has a copy of the play. There may be charges for that. There may be charges to uh, build sets. There's maybe charges to uh, uh, create costumes. There may be rights to other music that's going to be used in, in, in the play if it's a musical. And you have to pay for those rights as well. So, so you're telling me that the music that's being used, even if they have it written in the play, I'm sorry, even if they have it written in the script, because on one of the scripts I looked, they had a list of songs that were there. So you're telling me that now I also have to pay for the rights to use those songs? Well, I think there's a different clause if the, if the song is in the play. I think there's a, a separate clause for that, which covers you when you pay the royalties for the right to use the play. Mm-hmm. But I was talking about uh, external music being used in the play. Okay. If I'm a director, if I'm a director and I want to put in something by, you know, some artist that wasn't in the original play, then I have to make it have a budget to pay the royalties for that song as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, bes- besides that, there's printing of, of tickets, and if you don't own the uh, venue, the performing space you have to pay rent for that as well. And and that and that may come with other charges to use equipment, so on and so forth. And insurance. That's something else that comes along. You have to you have to pay, you have to have a writer's insurance policy to cover a minimum uh well back when we were doing theater, it was a minimum of a million dollar writer that you had to carry for insurance and encompassing all of that let's say a group wants to put on this show and they only have a budget of $375 they only want to charge $5 per ticket would that really be feasible well 
in this day and age, my first thought is <laughs> GoFundMe. Create a GoFundMe page and ask for donations. Identify exactly what the money is going to be used for, what you're trying to do, uh, the result of if it goes right, because you'll always want to tell them, you know, you're trying to do this because, you know, you need something to happen and uh, and try to raise money that way. There are a lot of organizations out there that will give money to the arts. You have to submit, um, you know, give them a submission of what you're going to do. And if it falls within the guidelines, uh, they may fund your project. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just going more more deep into the the business side of putting on such a production and thinking about, especially this is the holiday season and thinking about people who somebody may want to put on Black Nativity for next year. And this, I'm hoping that this would help fuel some excitement about doing this, doing Black Nativity, uh, because... Well, mm -hmm. My suggestion is if somebody is thinking about doing that for next December, they need to actually start getting their focus on what needs to be done, I would say, in February. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it's going to take, take time to identify all of the areas that you're going to need to fund before you can start selling tickets. Then uh, you need a, a team. Got to put your team together. You know, somebody that's going to build, be in charge of the crew to build the set. Somebody that's going to do lights and sound. You need to get your performance space uh, settled. And you can't wait until like October. You can't expect to do this <laughs> in December. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a minute to get everything in place, you know? Yeah, I think this was the inspiration as to why I wanted to do this around this production because in thinking about people have to plan. And I know this is about gospel music and gospel music gold and talking about gospel music, but this play, like we mentioned at the very beginning, is based on gospel music and yeah. hymns and thinking about the richness of telling the story through song, not only through conversation, but through song and interactions that took place. As I mentioned before in the script, they don't even indicate um, names <laughs> per se of the characters. And I, you wanted to say something on that? Uh, no, no, not really. Um, I know that in that play, the black black nativity that Joseph, Mary, or Jesus doesn't speak. They don't have speaking parts. And I think that he, he did that because he didn't want them, want the play to be about anything that they would say. It's an external view of the nativity, not necessarily from their point of view, mm -hmm. but let the, let the audience come up with their own point of view based on the songs, based on the um, shepherds, the wise men, whoever else. I did read one uh, version of the play. They put in uh, preaching, testifying deacons, sanctifying ladies, 
and down home preaching. <laughs> so that's to create a point of view that the audience can see and not Mary Joseph telling the story from their point of view. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I do have a question for you, if I may. Sure. And that question is very similar to what you asked me earlier. And this is about the music part of it. If you were the musical director for Black, Black Nativity, would you like to do it as per the original music in 1960s? Or would you do it, or what era of time would you do it in with corresponding music? As a musical director, that's a good question. I would like to do a combination because I would want to reach all people that would walk through the theater doors. We know for just from our own background that you don't just have an audience of children. You don't just have an audience of young adults. You don't just have an old, an, an audience of seniors. There's a mixture of people that walk through the door that buy tickets to come and see a production, especially a Christian-based production. So you're going to have an assortment of people there. And I would, as a musical director, I would want to reach everyone. So yes, I would put a hymn in. I actually talked with a young man on my previous show who redid this hymn called By and By. And listening to the way he rearranged that hymn, I would want to put that in there to reach the young people in knowing. But he also said that that was a song that him and his grandmother would communicate with during the pandemic. So in 2020, that was a song that him and his grandmother connected with. So you're thinking about this young man and connecting with his grandmother. So I would want to use that as a base of how as a musical director, I would want to do, yes, yeah, sure, I will put in some of our music from the 60s. Like I would find an Alex Bradford song and put that in there because he was part of the core of building this production, building Black Nativity. But then I'd also like to put a mix in to bring in the younger audience, meaning when I say younger, because I'm I'm a little older than most, <laughs> but I would put a little mixture in that would not only reach a teenager, but reach a young adult. And a young adult goes up to the age of 40. That's based off of what happens in the Catholic church to tell you you're a young adult until you get, I'm sorry, not 40, 30, when you get 30. So I would like to reach that audience. I don't want to leave anybody out when I join that music or bring that music together, because I want to make sure that we're not just doing all hymns and, and spirituals and stuff like that, because we're going to lose a lot of the audience. Even some of the seniors will probably get lost in that, but just bring a, a, a mixture, but make sure that it's a tasteful mixture where we have that. And we do know that um, we worked with a group years ago called redeemed hip hop, where we brought in, a hip hop group to bridge a gap in the music that we were doing traditional gospel music and included Calypso music in that. So 
you always want to, I think, when you're thinking of a broader audience that you'd like to reach. Now, if we were just in a, a church doing a number in a church, I would probably stick to just general gospel music. But if I'm thinking about doing something like Black Nativity at a playhouse, I would want to use an eclectic group of tasteful music that will bring people together, audiences together. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I think I went a little overtime on that, didn't? <laughs> but I, I looked at. So I heard the description you gave of the people or characters that are in a production. It sounds like that was more a church production when they added the pre the preacher in. I'll tell you what they have as a list of characters for from the original Black Nativity. And these characters, really, a majority of them do not have names. One of the main characters is woman. The next one is man. And then he has singers that are that double as townsfolks. And then he has a narrator, old woman. Now, the four shepherds, they have names, Ned, Zed, Ted, and Jed. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and then there's an elder. And like you said, for the non-speaking roles, of course, he had Mary and Joseph were non-speaking. Also in this, there were three wise men that were that had names, Belzar, Melkor, and Caspar, but they also did not have speaking parts. So Well, that well, that's because they actually had names in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then they, he, the mood that they wanted to set. Yeah, that's something else I like to talk about. And then they indicate the mood that they want to set is reverence, awe, joy, and jubilation. And as a director, when you see that, what would you tell your set designer or talk to your set designer about doing? if you want to do something other than just a set with platforms and a single star? Well, I think the main thing is you don't want to do a song that's going to, or a scene that's going to show jubilation or celebration and it's in low light. Mm. I think you want to have uh, that well lit and it can even start dark you know start with less light and then as the celebration goes on and it, you know goes up to a crescendo you, the lights come up slowly until the audience the uh, uh people in the audience will some somehow hey they're in the light you know mm -hmm. and they and they may not even notice uh but that shows how you can go from less jubilation to the most jubilation. Uh, another thing I would prob probably do is use, if there was going to use those platforms that you talked about uh, with different scenes, um, yeah, I would definitely have to move the actors around a bit. Uh, sometimes blocking, they call it blocking, you move people around in a play in different scenes. Uh, it's kind of like a chess match. 
you have to move make people move with with purpose but those areas uh, for that uh would definitely be well lit uh easy to see um and i guess lightly colored mm. yeah that's and that's something that people don't realize too sometimes you can't have everything the same light intensity and you can't have everything the same color when you're trying to create a mood in a theatrical setting, especially when you're talking about looking at different things, because we as humans notice various light cues and changes the mood. There are some, and when you mentioned that, I the, the first thing that popped in my mind was the whiz when uh, Eveline got killed and the song that came out was Can You See, I, I think it was it Can You See a Brighter Day, something like that. I don't remember the, the, mm -hmm. the actual name of the song, but when as soon as she died and they started doing jubilation, like you said, the lights came on bright <laughs> People right. were dancing around. Their costuming actually had gotten lighter uh, because right. they were in in showing that. So those are some of the things that in thinking about when you do a production, you can't just have everything in the same light. I've been places mm -hmm. to plays, whether it be at a church, and they had the same light from the start of the play to the end of the play. And you're not changing the mood of the audience with your continual light. And I understand, like you said, some places cannot afford that, but should be able to figure out how to, if you, if the lights are only on, on bright, that's the only thing you have is on bright, get some color screens and put them up to change the colors of the light. Even if you have to manually do that to change the color of the light, because it then changes the mood or the atmosphere of what you want people to feel and how you want to, them to relate to what's off the written page. Yeah, I was going to say that you might want to uh, use those color filters uh, instead of, you know, just white, white, uh, make it, uh, you know, yellow, perhaps. Mm -hmm. or, or, you can, or, or you can definitely use orange um, to show, you know, brightness as opposed to... Um, red which in a lot of cases shows you know sadness or a uh, serene scene mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of different angles in going that way and a lot of different angles in utilizing sound and that's another thing too when you when you think about doing a production is sometimes microphones do go out or sometimes you can't afford microphones for everybody. And it's best to learn how to utilize your space and utilize your area. And also in teaching people how to project. There are so many people that they think yelling is a way of projecting. And that's not the proper way to project. Uh, just like this in singing. There's a proper way to project and singing without hollering and going through your throat to make sound. 
So there are some things, and of course, that that was my area of expertise and going out and talking with people in theater is talking about how to utilize your voice best. Because when you think about doing a play and it's a live production and you do back-to-back shows, that can entail on your voice if you're not taking care of your voice, if you're not eating right, if you're not breathing right. And one of the main things I used to tell people is the last thing you want to do before you go out in a play, before you go out to sing, is you want you do not want to have chocolate or anything that has nuts in it, or nuts even, at, at that fact. So, well, with that, just an overall of Black Nativity and the history of it. There is a theater company that has been putting on Black Nativity since 1998, I believe, or maybe a little longer. I was doing a study and it's through the Congo Square Theater Company in Chicago that talked about doing a study and doing some research and it, they have a study guide where they give credit to this theater company called Intamin Theater, which is located in Seattle, Washington. And they've been presenting Black Nativity annually for over 12 years. So can you imagine every year you're going to get that production? And to be honest with you, I only heard about Black Nativity when they did a movie about it, which was in... 2013 with Forrest Whitaker in it and they did that movie that was the first time that I ever really paid attention to Black Nativity so I had not heard people doing this production or doing this show but when they decided to do it as a movie that's when I was like hmm, okay I'll look at this and, and see what's going on so for for those listeners that are not familiar with me I love Christmas movies <laughs> I love anything that is very inspirational, that gives me inspiration. But I'd like to encourage my audience, if you've not seen Black Nativity or not heard of Black Nativity, try and check it out. And I'll just read a little bit of information that I found from the New York Public Library about Black Nativity because they have a file they have files that contain correspondence and memos on the production. They have various drafts of the script, a production handbook, and a few lists of cues, costumes, songs, etc. Publicity, including press releases, flyers, posters, press books, and production history, programs, photographs, and clippings. The show presented in many different countries is documented by photographs, programs and reviews the but if you're interested in it there are carbon copies of the letters by Langston Hughes which his handwritten signature and notes added on regarding efforts to produce black nativity around the world so they have a the black nativity files are arranged in eight series uh, one is correspondence 
where the correspondence and memos are relating to the production of Black nativity. Scripts, series two, which includes scripts that has various drafts and clean copies of the script for Black nativity by Langston Hughes. Series three has a small file with single page lists, a handbook about putting on the show and a souvenir piece of sheet music. Series four is publicity where press releases, printed flyers and other publicity for various productions of Black Nativity. Series five are programs for productions in the United States, Europe and Australia. Series six is photographs. So they have folders of photographs that are of primarily the production and publicity shoots. Also some rehearsal and snapshots. Uh, most of them are not dated. Also contains photographs of Marion Williams from other productions that uh, she was involved in like The Soul in Jazz. And then in series seven, they have clippings, photocopy clippings and reviews of Black Nativity. And the 1989 clippings of Marion Williams, one of the stars of the show, including clippings in other languages, including French and German. And then in series eight, they have a lot of oversized materials, which are photographs and posters. Now, this information I found from the New York Public Library of Performing Arts. So if anyone is interested in finding out more about that, check, check out some of this material. Look into it. And by all means, when you think about doing a production such as Black Nativity or any production, do your research. And that is my thought on doing a production like that. Uh, Calvin, do you have any other uh, parting words before we close out this segment? Uh, I would just like to say, first of all, thank you for having me on the show and for all of your listeners. If you have a chance to support the arts, we're talking right now with um, drama or um, or or music, uh, please do so, especially the ones that tell our story. If we don't tell our story, then somebody else is going to tell our story, and it may not be what we want to hear. It may not be accurate. So let's support those that those of us that try to tell our story. Thanks again, Anselme. Okay. And if anyone would like to get in contact with you about any of your workshops or any of your um, presentations that you do, how can they get in contact with you? They can email me at born to speak to you at gmail.com. That's born, the number two, speak, the number two, you, at gmail.com. And they can also check out my website, which is calvingibbs.com. Wonderful. I want to thank my guest, Calvin Gibbs Jr., for participating in this segment on Let's Talk Gospel Music Gold. These shows are to explore, record, and raise excitement about gospel music and its gold. I hope you, the audience, enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Please send me an email sharing your thoughts about this podcast segment. 
Also, if you have any suggestions of future guests you would like to hear on the show, send an email to let's talk to gmg at gmail.com. That's let's talk the number two gmg at gmail.com. You may also like and share the podcast episode, or you may subscribe and be alerted when the newest one is published. What's New is a Let's Talk Gospel Music Gold radio show on WMRMDB, Internet Radio Station, which comes on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. I am your host, Ansonia, saying, let's sing, let's shout, and tell of the great news through Gospel Music Gold. Until the next episode, take care and God bless.